This is the weekend edition of The Code Report. I'm delighted to be joined by A.K. Bhattacharya or A.K.B. as he is called, a business journalist for many, many years, uh, earlier editor of The Pioneer and Business Standard and now Business Standard's editorial director. He also writes a long column in the paper. I'm going to be talking to him today on his latest book, his second and latest book, India's Finance Ministers from Independence to Emergency. That's 1947 to 1977. Uh, A.K.B., thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me here, Govind. Okay. So all these finance ministers uh, who you've profiled, most of them, of course, have not been seen or barely seen by those who are still around. Many of them would have passed on. And yet they've laid the foundation for what India is in more ways than one, in its economic outlook, in its economic architecture, the institutions, the boundaries, our uh, response to a whole uh, range of issues, including tariffs, protection, liberalization and everything. But this clock, of course, stops at 77. And why so? I will ask you in a little bit. But before I come to the past, let's start with the present. I mean, you are, uh, even as we speak, writing about your observations on the finance ministry and the government. What do you see today that in many ways is a reflection of all that has happened in the past in the context of India's economic policymaking? The one point that uh, strikes me very clearly uh, is that certain things have not changed even over the last 75, 76 years. I mean, what has not changed is, for example, the fraught and stressed relationship between the Reserve Bank of India and the government of India. That seems to be a running story. Although uh, there are stages, moments of truce, and mutual understanding, but the relationship does not uh, seem to be easy even now. If it was Benegal Rama Rao, a longest-serving RBI governor, had to quit because the then Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru sort of you know outlined the, the rule of the game that Reserve Bank of India is only autonomous to the extent that it is an extension of the Union Government of India. Now, that is a, a rule that he sort of laid down very clearly when it came to the Reserve Bank of India's power to decide through a board decision, criticize a budget move of the finance ministry. And that is where the prime minister took the side of the finance ministry and the finance minister. And as a result, the RBI governor decided to put in his papers. Now, I don't think that we have seen any RBI governor uh, of late to put in his papers as such, except that you will remember that in 2018, you saw Urjit Patel put in his papers and quit in a day's notice. And the reason that the media knew why he quit was that he wanted more powers to regulate the public sector banks than what has been given to RBI under the law. And also he was worried the manner in which the center was drawing on the resources of Reserve Bank of India's surplus. Uh, so these are the two proximate causes what led to the sudden resignation of Urjit Patel that was in 2018. And what happened in 1958-59 is something similar where the RBI governor at that time was fighting with the then finance minister T.T. Krishnamachari over uh, whether he has the right to criticize the government's decisions 
that infringe upon monetary policy issues. So I think that seems to be a common thread that we have still not been able to handle that issue about RBI versus the government. And the second point is uh, the political establishment and particularly the finance ministry initiating action against offenders, economic law offenders and those who are violating economic laws. Now, those still continue to be shrouded in some mystery and some doubts and allegations that why those decisions were taken the way they were. Those days, even a decision like a decision against Dalmia, a probe against Dalmia, uh, was seen as a politically motivated action, just as today some action against some industrial house or some inaction against an industrial house has the same ring of uh, political motivation. Uh, so I think in both the issues, I find things have not changed. Where things have changed, uh, there are quite a few areas where things have changed from those days of the 30 years after independence and now. For example, the manner in which the government is now relying less and less on the kind of borrowing that the Reserve Bank of India earlier would help the government meet. You know, Today, the government of India has to seek recourse to the markets for meeting its borrowing requirements. So therefore, the government is under greater fiscal discipline, at least on paper, than what it used to happen then. Those days, the ad hoc treasury bills could have been issued at any given point in time by the government when it wants to meet its borrowing requirements. But now the government is under greater self-discipline, so to say, to meet its borrowing requirements. So I think there are changes, but uh, what strikes me more is that the things that have not changed even now. And I'm going to come to the, the role of the Prime Minister in the present and the past, since you did bring it up. Now, before that... Why did you choose this particular period of 1947 to 77 and stop the clock? Uh, three uh, reasons. Now, one, it was uh, becoming difficult for me to pack in all the 25 or 26 finance ministers that have taken charge of North Block the last 75, 76 years in one volume. So I had to create at least three volumes. So therefore, you have to bear with me uh, on two more volumes that will come out very soon. So therefore, I had to make a division. I chose to have the first volume till 1978, although it says 1977, but it is actually ends at 1978. Uh, now, the second reason why I chose this period is because uh, this is the time when the Congress era comes to an end for the first time in India's economic history. In a sense, from 1947, to 1978, this is an uninterrupted Congress regime with three prime ministers and 11 finance ministers having presented his 30 budgets. And the third most important reason is that till 78, I do see economic thought informing policy making in the finance ministry and the finance ministers by and large remaining broadly of a similar nature, which is building institutions, setting up the rule book, following a very restrictive protectionist policy, states to be in the business of businesses. So you see from 78 onwards, 
you see winds of change blowing in the finance ministry after 78. But till 78, you see a similar statist economic policies, raising customs duty tariffs, interventionist policies where excise duties need to be tinkered with, raising income tax rates, not bringing them down, but at the same time, building of institutions, setting up a statistical division, setting up the economic advisor's office in the finance ministry, setting up the planning commission, creating many institutions like the Unit Trust of India, IDBI, ICICI, nationalizing Imperial Bank of India. So these are all decisions taken in the same spirit, including nationalizing Air India. This is the phase when Congress was in command and in charge of a straightest economic policies. And I saw that from 70 onwards, there were changes that were happening. They took their own time before you saw the 1991 crisis and the economic reforms. But the changes started happening from 78 onwards. So which is the third reason why I stopped at 1978 and started with 1947. And uh, I'm going to come to some of the finance ministers and you talked about the many taxes, uh, I would imagine wealth tax and expenditure tax. And it's interesting that you also point out the wealth tax that TTK or TT Krishnamachari introduced in 57-58 was only abolished by Arun Jetli in 2015. That's 58 years. It also says uh, what it takes to remove a law or rather how easy it is to introduce a law and what it takes to remove a law. And maybe people should think about that when they uh, agitate against other laws. Now, fortunately, Govind, T.T. Krishnavachari introduced one more tax, the expenditure tax. Fortunately, his expenditure tax uh, was abolished much earlier. So in a sense that, I agree, wealth tax took uh, so many years before it could be abolished. But luckily, expenditure tax over and above the income tax was abolished about uh, three to four years later. But the thinking was something that we may see today too, right? That people are spending a lot. When I when you look at maybe something like TCS or tax uh, deducted at source, the thinking is that, you know, some people are spending more and they're rich people and they should be taxed on expenditure. Absolutely. There's a section in this book wherein I talk about uh, where uh, T.T. Krishnamachari got this idea. He got this idea from uh, British well-known economist Nicholas Calder. Now, his idea was that tax expenditure as well. But he also recommended that by all means tax expenditure, but don't let the overall tax incidence go beyond 45%. Right. And I think you mentioned that B.K. Nehru pointed out that basically this was now going above close to 90% or the famous 90%. Absolutely. So the problem was not with the idea, but with its execution. And nobody in the system could actually challenge it because it came from Teddy Krishnamachari, who was Nehru's favorite finance minister, and nothing could be done except, you know, protest and, and live with those usurious tax regime. And uh, TDK, of course, had to resign because of a scandal and came back a little later again for his second stint, in your, as you've outlined in your book too. Now, let me come to a slightly larger point, uh, AKB. So, Nehru seems to clearly play, at least in my reading, as someone who's looking at it maybe at such depth for the first time, in economic policy. Now, the question here is, do therefore prime ministers subsequently, including right up till today, play a far greater role in economic policy than we perhaps know or are able to glean? 
Well, there is a there is a qualitative difference that I see from what is to happen in the first 30 years and what happens is happening now. Let me come to the similarity. The similarity is even then the Prime Minister would take the final call. And even now the Prime Minister takes the final call on economic policy making implemented by the finance ministers. But during those days, the finance ministers had the courage of conviction to disagree with the Prime Minister. And if the Prime Minister still insisting on what he wants to be done, then the finance ministers would quit. Now, I don't think that we are seeing that part anymore, where the finance ministers don't disagree with their prime ministers to an extent where there is a principal difference and on that issue, the finance minister decides to say goodbye. Uh, if you take classic example of John Mathai, India's second finance minister, who actually disagreed with this prime minister on the idea of setting up the planning commission, because he believed that setting up the planning commission may be good as an institution, but it will unnecessarily dilute the role of economic policy making undertaken by the finance ministry. So there has to be a very clear demarcation of what kind of role the planning commission should play and what kind of role the finance ministry should play. Since that clarity did not come about, so John Mathai decided to put in his papers and Nehru sat on that resignation letter for more than a month and then decided to accept his resignation and going for, guess who? A former RBI governor, a man who had originally given the idea to Nehru about setting up the planning commission uh, and he is made the finance minister to implement him. That's Siri Deshmukh. Siri Deshmukh. And Siri Deshmukh too, after six years, has to quit Again, on a policy difference of how do you reorganize states. And in this time, Bombay, Bombay was a financial capital even then. So when Sidi Deshmukh realized that his prime minister is not agreeing to the idea of not tinkering with the structure the way the prime minister wanted to, so he decided to quit. So I think that's an era where the finance ministers would listen to their prime minister. They will have to listen to the prime minister. Prime minister will have the call on the final policy, but the finance ministers would have the courage to say, I am sorry, I disagree, therefore I quit. I think today what happens is that the prime ministers are uh, taking very keen interest in what is happening in the finance ministry. And when the finance minister differs with the prime minister, I don't think the finance ministers resign. I do believe that uh, when demonetization was announced, there were a lot of differences of opinion within the finance ministry. The chief economic advisor then was not comfortable with this. The finance minister was also is not clear whether he agreed with it or not. But nobody would actually take a position that, listen, this is not correct. Let us not do it or do it in this way. So I think uh, that is a big change that has happened from the first 30 years to the last 15, 20, 30 years. Uh, remember, even in the case of the back nationalization, uh, you actually had to see the finance minister quitting because the finance minister, Maharaji Desai, was not in agreement with the idea of back nationalization. He clearly believed that the social control of banks is a better idea than back nationalization. And therefore, when he found that the Prime Minister Indira Gandhi wants to go ahead with back nationalization, 
and therefore he decided that if you want to agree with it and indira gandhi prime minister also was very comfortable with the finance minister leaving the scene at this point in time and so the prime minister took charge of the finance ministry and implemented the idea and the, the concept of bank nationalization so i think that's a big difference that has happened from the 30 years and now you've talked about john mathai in uh, detail and you've talked about how brilliant he was even in academics now how would you see his decision to uh, fight against the setting up of the planning commission with what happened uh, more recently which is to disband the planning commission and have the niti aayog it's a very interesting thought that the planning commission was not set up under an act of parliament even nehru believed that it is better to set it up as a cabinet resolution you know so it became an administrative decision of the government so therefore he did not use a parliamentary law to create it so planning commission as long as it existed till 2015 1st january uh, it was operating as a government department not created under a law therefore the modi government found it relatively easy to dismantle it because it was not under an act of parliament it was only a government decision uh, carried out through a cabinet resolution uh, so i think while the birth of the planning commission itself was a little bit fraud because such a big institutional decision should have had the sanction of parliament imagine uh, when you had uh, the idbi being set up uh, you got a law created uti was set up you got a law created when imperial bank of india was taken over law was created now in the case of planning commission nothing of that sort was done so i am not at all uh, you know uh, sort of sympathetic to the idea of meeting an institution of that importance uh, without its parliamentary sanction and it was uh, when the, the regime changed the new government came and they they found it very relatively easy to abolish planning commission and bring in displaced niti aayog remember niti aayog is also not a, not a body which is created under an act of parliament so if a, if a new government comes and it says that niti aayog is not good enough they they might do something else with niti aayog you know that's interesting yeah okay so if you were to look at you know this whole period again maybe more tending towards the late 70s rather than the early part india became inward looking which is uh, manifested through many of these things that you've uh, talked about including uh, raising tariffs including uh, raising duties and maybe perhaps you know looking at business in a certain way uh, and uh, maybe that was triggered by the hari mundra scandal or maybe something else if that was the case do you think that there is uh, one or two individuals specifically who led to it were they finance ministers or was it you know top down in that sense was it the nehruvian way of saying that okay this is how we should be as an economy which is you know uh, uh, this is the level of taxes this is the level of protection this is the level of you know uh, uh, let's say focus on businesses i think the answer to your question is that both at a certain level there was general broad political agreement uh, except probably uh, the views of the satyagraha party uh, or the justice party which got dismantled so so uh, you know those were ideas with which there was general agreement among the political classes that these are decisions that are needed to be implemented so congress uh, whether it had the majority or the full majority uh, didn't make much of a difference they went ahead 
whether it is a question of raising income tax rates or whether it is a question of raising custom duty or uh, setting up a state-owned financial institutions, taking over Air India and uh, Imperial Bank of India and creating a state bank behemoth called the State Bank of India. Now, these are all decisions that, that, that the Congress governments took and there was not much opposition to those decisions. But you have to recognize that a very important element during that time was each and every decision was taken after considerable discussion and debate in parliament and outside parliament. I mean, take the case of the Haridas Mundra scandal. Now, this scandal would not have come about if it had not been raised by a Congress member called Firoz Gandhi, who was Nehru's son-in-law. He's a Congress member who raises in parliament against his father-in-law's government and says that this is not correct. And, and a result of which Nehru had no other option to set up a commission of inquiry headed by a chief justice of Bombay High Court, M.C. Chagla, who is given the task of completing the inquiry in one month flat. And just before the budget, he presents that report. And even though he is not directly involved in the deal, because of his moral responsibility, the finance minister is asked to go. And, and the deal was basically LIC bought shares of Hari Mundra's companies and essentially supported them. I mean, shades of which we've seen in many times, uh, many times later. Absolutely. And it was done because the stock markets had tumbled after the T.T. Krishnamachari's first budget, wherein he had introduced those new taxes. So therefore, uh, there was considerable debate within the system to take those actions. Take the case of even bank nationalization. Now, you know, as I write in this book, that the bank nationalization move was not decided in one evening. It was discussed and debated in the Congress forums, Congress parliamentary meetings, and considerable debate took place before Mrs. Gandhi decided that she does not need the finance minister and she needs to change the finance minister so that she believes that she can take that decision on nationalizing 14 banks. So she did take that decision finally, but only after a lot of debate and discussion took place within the party, within parliament and outside parliament. So I think that's something that you must recognize, which distinguishes that 30 years from what is happening now in the last many years. But Indira Gandhi also became finance minister in 1969, and she was the first prime minister to do so. Yes, yes. She took charge of the finance ministry because she felt that she will be in a better position to implement that back nationalization decision and to also take political credit. And which she did. Her, her party and her, she herself made political gains by the back nationalization move. And if I were to, you know, go back now and look at all the finance ministers that you profiled in this period, how would you rank them in terms of contribution? I know it's a tough one to do, but, you know, there are some obvious ones. And you've mentioned that already, setting up of institutions, which let's say TTK, though he resigned in disgrace in the first round, uh, he came back in the second round and did a lot of institution building, including uh, institutions we see today, UTI and uh, IDBI and GIC and so on. Maybe uh, C.D. Deshmukh, in his time, set up the NSS, moved the ISI, the Indian Statistical Institute for Estimating Income. He set up the Central Statistical Organization. 
and uh, so on. So that's another kind of uh, nation building. He also worked on the revamping the company law, something we're still constantly talking about and struggling with. So what's your pecking order like? My finance minister in this 30-year period would be C.D. Deshmukh because uh, he came in at the helm at a time India was a young country, uh, just about four or five years uh, after independence. He built new institutions, built new laws. He brought in the concept of finance commissions, uh, which actually laid the foundation for fiscal federalism. And he set up a statistical system. He brought in from the World Bank a man called Mr. Anjaria to look after the economic advisor's office in the finance ministry, which, mind you, was a role that was sought to be played with the planning commission. But Deshmukh decided that the chief economic advisor's job should be in the finance ministry. So all those institutions, even the, the State Bank of India idea, as a former RBI governor, uh, he was not very comfortable. But then as the finance minister, he went in and did it. So I think it is Sidi Deshmukh, in spite of the fact that he did raise duties, he did raise customs duties, but he was a statist finance minister. But at the same time, I would say for a young country, which has just got its independence, I would rate C.D. Deshmukh's performance as the finance minister. He made probably the biggest contribution to economic lawmaking, economic governance uh, in India. Okay, so I have a related question. But before that, uh, there's another interesting thing you've pointed out, uh, AKB, the similarity between C.D. Deshmukh and uh, Manmohan Singh in their path through the Reserve Bank and the University Grants Commission and then to Finance Ministry. Yes, it's remarkable how things happen. There are two things. The first thing is that you mentioned how C.G. Deshmukh, who was the RBI governor, was made the finance minister, and then he went to UGC. And uh, similar is, uh, uh, but a different sequence. Uh, RBI governor was Manmohan Singh first, and then he comes to UGC, and then he becomes the finance minister. Uh, different circumstances, but clearly the sequence is very, very similar. There's another uh, similarity that will probably has not come through completely, but people can make sense of it because I've given a hint in the book, which is that T.T. Krishnamachari, the finance secretary under him, was H.M. Patel. Now, T.T. Krishnamachari was the finance minister who made H.M. Patel the fall guy in the entire uh, Mundra scandal. It is H.M. Patel who lost his spotless reputation as being a good civil servant in the Mundra scandal. Uh, now, it is the same H.M. Patel who comes back in 1978 to become the finance minister of India. If you look at the history of India's finance ministry last 76 years, you see so many such dramatic ironies uh, that uh, you start wondering that uh, should there be proper film be made on these events and developments. And, you know, I'm just to pick up something again from that we're seeing uh, right now, there is a lot of talk of internationalization of rupee and linked to that or maybe triggered by the fact that uh, there was a war in Ukraine and India uh, dealing uh, with Russia on oil, trying to, you know, create a rupee-denominated world, uh, at least in our trade. And Muraji Desai's first steps in that direction in uh, somewhere in 1960, I'm, I would think. Would you like to dwell on that a little bit? Varadhi Desai realized that it is important to help use of the Indian rupee for conducting uh, transactions for Indian exporters and importers. Uh, he made some progress. I would not say that the idea of the rupee trade uh, came into being. I think those were half-hearted steps. 
Uh, but what is happening right now is far more revolutionary, I would say. I don't even know whether these are realistic steps or not. But those days, getting into a rupee trade was certainly aimed at helping India's trade with the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. And uh, the other thing, these are terms that have now seeped into, let's say, subsequent decades as well. One was the gold control order, which Moraji Desai is famous for. The second is the compulsory deposit scheme. So uh, what drove these? And do we see any remnants of these laws? Well, gold control law, fortunately, was abolished by another Maharashtrian finance minister, like Madhu Dandavati, in 1990. And it was mooted first by another Maharashtrian finance minister, S.B. Chawan. It was introduced by a politician from Maharashtra, Muraji Desai, uh, which was a disastrous move. And I give you a proper account of it, how it really led to the loss of livelihood for so many jewelers and goldsmiths. It continued to be like that. And only after uh, about uh, you know 30 years or so, uh, it finally got abolished. On the compulsory deposit scheme was again a very, very regressive tax levy wherein a part of your income will have to be deposited with the government at a, a very nominal interest rate uh, because the government needed resources. So it became like a tax. But uh, fortunately, compulsory deposit, they also moved out of the system by late 80s. You know, as you look at the personalities of these finance ministers over time, we talked about John Mathai and you described him as a brilliant individual coming from an academic background, Siri Deshmukh, again similar, and to T.T. Krishnamachari, who was a businessman. And the sense I'm getting is that he's perhaps the only businessman in this period, at least, who became, who renounced everything, became a finance minister and seemed to have swung to the extreme left in terms of economic policy, at least, which was quite contradictory in a way. Who do you think from this period is the kind of personality we should have as a finance minister today? Or what is the what is the amalgam that we should look for or, or a country like India should want or expect or desire? In my book, I recount uh, this conversation that Moraji Desai has with Nehru. Nehru is discussing uh, this idea with Desai that why don't you become the finance minister? And Desai, in his usual dry way, he says, no, 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 I cannot be the finance minister. Then Nehru asks him that, why do you think uh, you cannot be the finance minister? What do you think are the qualities of the finance minister? So then, you know, Desai lists out three or four qualities. And the qualities that I remember, I gave a full account of it in the book, is that one, he has to be a party man. In other words, that uh, he should be a member of the Congress party, the ruling party. The second one, he must have a broad idea of finances and money matters. And even if he doesn't have an, an expert's idea, he should be open to consult experts to get that opinion. And third, that he cannot be associated with the party's treasury functions. And I think that a finance minister who belongs to the party is certainly is in a better position to take important decisions for the government because he should have the best of equations with the prime minister. And I say it, and I am going to say it in the second or the third volume, Wherein the difference between Yashwant Sinha, who was one of the best finance ministers India has seen, and Jaswant Singh was that Yashwant Sinha suffered from a poor equation with this Prime Minister Atal Vari Vajpayee, whereas Jaswant Singh, in a short time, made a bigger impact because he had a very good equation with the Prime Minister. So a Prime Minister's equation with the finance minister 
and the finance minister's equation with the prime minister is very, very important. And remember, T.T. Krishnamachari quit the government when he realized that he could not go to Lal Bahadur Shastri for consultation on economic matters like he could do with Nehru. And because Shastri would immediately say that if he comes to him on a consultation, he will refer those decisions to the cabinet. But T.T. Krishnamachari wanted to discuss proposals with his prime minister first before it goes to the cabinet. So it is very important, if you look at the last 75 years, that the finance ministers who have made a difference are those who have a good equation with the prime minister. Even Manmohan Singh succeeded because Narasimha Rao allowed him to function the way Manmohan Singh wanted to function. So I think the most important qualification for a finance minister would be that how good is his equation with the prime minister. And that equation gets better if he's also a member of the same political party. Right, uh, AKB, that's a very useful note to end on and brings us back, obviously, to the present. Uh, thank you very much for uh, joining me. And before you go, a word on when is the next volume out? The next volume is out in January 2024. Okay, and what, what uh, years is that going to that cover? The period uh, will be from 1978 onwards to 1998, which means you can cover the first stint of Chidambaram. And will bring us uh, pretty much to the present. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> Great. Right. AKB, thank you very much you. and a pleasure talking to you as always. Thank you very much, Govind, for having me. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening. <laughs>